A reading from Paul's letter to the Romans. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. The word of the Lord. I'm going to tell you about this, this book idea dream that I have. So I have this book I want to write someday. I don't know if I ever will, but um, it's not real high on my priority list. But I have this idea. I call it Conversations with Humans because um, for the last 20 or 30 years, I've had a lot of conversations with human beings. And so I, I love to meet somebody and people find this trait either endearing or annoying, depending on who you ask. And I will, I will do three things. So I will, first, I will just start asking questions like, who are you? Where do you come from? Um, what, why do you do this job? Why do you like this job? You know, what, what's your family like? Where did you grow up? And then I just listen and do a lot of listening. And I find it really endlessly fascinating people's stories. And then sometimes, you know, these strangers, sometimes I'll say a word of blessing or maybe just say, I'm going to be praying for you or Jesus loves you or something like that. So over the last 20, 30 years, these stories pour out. I've heard just dozens, if not hundreds of them. And they're often stories of gratitude. Something good happened to them that they didn't expect or grace or grit. But almost always, no fail, there is a story of groaning. There's a story of loss. There's a story of hurt. There's a story of brokenness. I hear it all the time. If you just let people talk long enough, it will come out. So I'm in Minneapolis. I'm getting an Uber ride. Find out the guys from Somalia said, tell me about that. So he tells me his parents moved here. His parents are now divorced. His, he is engaged to a woman, a Somalian woman who has moved to Kenya, and she's trying to immigrate to the United States so they can be married and live together. He's trying to get into the tech field, but he's failed to do that so far. There's groaning. I go to my grandson's baseball game. I start talking to the umpire after the game. He tells me, you know, my wife has died. My two daughters, I love them very much. One of them calls me every day, but they live far away. And I just, I, I could tell the, the loneliness in his voice. I talk to my neighbors, a Mexican family, and I can just tell by talking to them. Just tell, I can just read it on their faces, just how much they have been marginalized. And, and ignored and scoffed at and put down and held in contempt in this culture that they've moved to. 
These are stories of groaning. I hear it from rich people. I hear it from poor people. I hear it from the guy who has his dream job. And he gets into his dream job, but the dream job crushes him and is sucking the life out of his soul. And this guy makes a lot of money. These are stories of groaning. And I don't know if you heard that in our first scripture reading, Romans chapter 8. And if you want to turn there in your bulletin, we're going to walk through this text. But just start, get the lay of the land, verses 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. These, this is a, a book about groaning. And sometimes the groans are like a piercing pain, like a child with a drug addiction or another school shooting. And sometimes they're like a dull ache, like people who were once your friends. And now, and you like maybe even shared meals together around the table. Maybe it was a husband or a wife and you share the same bed. And now the marriage is over and you don't even speak to each other. That is groaning. That hurts. So the question I want to ask is, what does God have to say about all this human groaning? Does God have a word? Does God have a word of consolation? Does God have a word of hope? Does God have an impossible word? Something impossible to change the groaning into something else. Well, here's what I'd like to invite you to do. As one of my preaching mentors, the guy that I never met, but I admire very much, the Prince of Preachers, Dr. Gardner Taylor, one of the, probably the second most famous African-American preacher in this country, besides Martin Luther King Jr., he would say, let's take a walk through the neighborhood of the biblical text. So let's look at the neighborhood of the text and let's see what's there. And I'm going to divide this sermon into four parts. First, there is hope in our groaning. Second, the groaning world. Third, the groaning church. And fourth, hope in our groaning. And if you're paying attention, the first point and the fourth point are exactly the same. And why is that? Well, because that's the way the text itself, this unit of the Bible, is structured. There's like this incredible word of hope and then a lot of stuff in between. And then there's this incredible word of hope. So it's like the two arms of God are wrapped around all of our groaning. I love that in this text. So first, hope in our groaning. It starts with hope. It doesn't start with our groaning. It starts with God. Verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now notice that little word, consider. So Paul says, I've thought about this. I've thought deeply about this. And I've thought deeply about this, especially in light of the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've thought about this. And I've come to a logical conclusion. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. It, It really cares about the life of the mind. Faith and the intellect are not like completely separate categories. They are, as Pope John Paul II said, two wings. Two wings working together, faith and reason. So Paul says, I've thought about this, and here's what I've concluded. Take all the sufferings of this present time. Take them all. Think about your life. Think about the things that cause you to groan, or that will, if you're young, you know. So, sorry, but you're going to face a lot of groaning before you die. 
You probably watched your parents groan or your grandparents groan. There's a lot of groaning. So take it all. Take, take um, the sickness. Take trauma. Take sometimes really lonesome, aching nights or a longing for intimacy or, or people that you've lost or the things that make you worry or weep. Take all of that. Take, take the sufferings of the poor. Take the suffering of the persecuted and the imprisoned unjustly or in the imprisoned for their faith. Take it all, Paul says, put it on the scale, put it on one side of the scale, and then on the other side, put the glory that is to be revealed to us, he says. Put them on the scale, and he says, there's no comparison. This matters. This really matters. The suffering really matters. God takes our tears and puts them in his bottle, it says in the book of Psalms. But over here, there's a glory you cannot imagine. So that is either not true and it's cruel or it's true and it's one of these gloriously impossible things that God promises that with man it's impossible, but with God it's possible. See, earlier in the book of Romans, it talks about justification by faith, which is this beautiful Christian belief that in and through Jesus, his life and death and resurrection, the final judgment from God has come into the present and declared believers in Jesus not guilty. You are not condemned. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. So Romans chapter 5, verse 1, you've, therefore you've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is so wonderful. We walk through this door called justification by faith and we have a new relationship with God as Father and we cry out, Abba, Father. And we can do that anytime, anywhere, no matter what condition we're in, no matter how sinful or unworthy we fail, feel, no matter how weak our faith is, we can walk through that door of justification by faith. And it's beautiful. But now Paul's saying in chapter eight, you walk through that door, do you know what else you walked into? You walk into this like whole new creation. This whole new creation in which God is making all things new in Jesus. And that's where we're headed. But we're not there yet. So that's why we need point two, the groaning world. Uh, look with, with me at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now you will see that, that little um, phrase, the creation, five times in this little section of scripture. So verse 19 for the creation waits, verse 20, for the creation was subjected, verse 21, that the creation itself, uh, verse 22, for we know the whole creation, and verse 23, and not only the creation. So the creation, what is that? Well, Paul personifies, he kind of makes it like a person, like a literary technique, he personifies, it's basically like, um, that. that's everything, everything in the world. So it's it's apple trees, it's beagles, it's rivers, it's sunsets, it's earthquakes, it's the Milky Way, it's the Great Lakes, it's you, it's me, and it's awe-inspiring. And we get to be stewards of all this amazing creation. It tells us in the book of Genesis and other places throughout Scripture, God made it, and then he puts it in our care to care for it, to tend it. It's like God planted a garden, and now you're the garden tenders. That is beautiful. And sometimes the church has missed this aspect of discipleship, that, that we are called to care for and to be caretakers of God's creation. 
So that's a very important role, but that's another sermon. But in this text, it's primarily referring to something else about creation, namely that what we're experiencing now about the creation is abnormal. It's fallen. So look at in verses 20 and 21, those jarring phrases, verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. And then verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption. So there's this subjection to futility and then a bondage to corruption. There's the creation as we know it is, is not the way God originally intended it. It's not the very good of Genesis 1. It's very good, but it's also very flawed. It's very broken. It's very fallen. It's out of whack. Some people have looked at this, the fallenness of creation, and said, how can there be a good God if there's so much wrong? This is a major problem for Charles Darwin. You know, the uh, Mr. Natural Selection, Mr. Evolutionist. So, and he had his own story of groaning, by the way, his own very personal story of groaning, including the death of his young daughter, whom he, he loved. But one of the things he, he observed and he wrote about was a particular wasp that lays eggs inside a caterpillar. And then the eggs create larvae that grow and eat themselves out of the caterpillar. And the caterpillar dies. Now you think, oh, that's gross. Yeah. Nature is gross. There's worse stuff I could talk about. But Darwin said, and I quote, I cannot persuade myself that a benefit, good and omnipotent God (laughs) would have designedly created this wasp, which I can't pronounce, with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars. So how can there be a good God if this happens? And, you know, as a Christian, you know what our response would be? Yeah, I know. That's terrible. That's awful. I agree with you, Charles. I totally agree with you. We've been thinking about this for 2,000 years. Like, we thought about this. We've been thinking about this, like, 1,850 years before you were born. And what we would say is, yeah, it's awful, but it's not the way it's supposed to be. There's something fallen in nature. So this text, Romans 8, Paul's taking us, St. Paul's taking us all the way back to Genesis 3. Actually, this whole, this little section is rich with Genesis 1 through 3, this, this whole little section. But he's taking us back to Genesis 3, and he's telling that God's very good creation, when we fell as the kings and queens and the rulers and the leaders of creation, the caretakers, the stewards, when we fell, all creation fell with us. And that's why it says that creation fell, it was not willingly, as he says in verse 20. So, so again, personifying creation, St. Paul's kind of saying creation's going, hey, 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 I didn't sign up for this. You guys screwed up. But now we're suffering because you fell. They didn't, it wasn't willing. And yet, in creation's fallenness, we are going to see flashes of hope, which we'll get to in a minute. But third, we have to talk about the groaning church. So, it's easy to think. I remember as a new Christian, I was 16 years old. I met Jesus. It was really powerful. It was really overwhelming. It was really emotional. Changed my life. I thought, now I'm going to have less suffering. 
I will have less struggles. I will have less depression. I will have less. I will never have like suicidal ideation. I will never um, struggle with grief and loss. I will never struggle deeply with sin. Don't Christians have less groaning? Well, look at verse 23. And not only creation, but we ourselves, it's talking about the church, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we ourselves also groan. And that little phrase that, that really bothered me as I was, well, I, I just struggled. What, what did that mean? And why did Paul say that? At the end of verse 23, where he says the redemption of our bodies. Like of all the things Paul could have said, the amazing things that are going to happen to us. Why the redemption of our bodies? Well, I think it's, I think this is probably what St. Paul was thinking, although I don't know for sure. But we know that it's as embodied creatures. That's where most of our suffering comes from. So it's as embodied people that we get the flu or we get cancer, or we watch a loved one slip into dementia. It's embodied people who struggle with depression or addictions. And when you miss somebody, or you love someone, or you want to be with someone, what do you long for? You long for them. You long for their bodies. You long to hold a hand. You long to... Put your head on someone's shoulder. You long for a kiss. You long to look them in the eye. So what St. Paul is saying, when Jesus returns, when we go to him, when his new creation descends upon us, when the eternal weight of glory tips the scales to joy, our bodies will be raised, will be renewed will be restored, will be healed. That's what we're waiting for. So the Christian actually groans more. We have a deeper kind of groaning. We don't actually groan less. Because we know what was very good creation. We know what will be the restoration of all things in Jesus. But we're in the middle. We're still here. And so we groan. I just want to say that I love this, this passage and I love that verse 23 because it says to me that if that's true, then the church is the place where you can bring your groans. We are not an anti-groaning zone. This is a full-on groaning, go ahead and groan zone, you know? If you come to my house in East Aurora, I have a big painting of a French artist named Georges Rouault, who was a French Roman Catholic painter in the early um, 20th century. And in 1922, this is not the painting I have, he painted uh, a, a large picture called who doesn't, point, who doesn't Put on a Face? And it is a painting of the saddest clown you will ever see in your life. It's so sad. But it was one of his really important paintings. So when he was 34 years old, he struggled off and on with depression and various other afflictions. And, um, but he saw something when he was 34 years old that changed his life. So 
he was going by a um, circus caravan and he saw this old clown sitting on a wooden crate. And this old clown was mending his costume, which had all this glitter and gold and uh, pizzazzy kind of stuff on it. But the clown was really sad. And clowns in his day, as I suppose today, were really kind of poor, marginalized people, drifters, very low social status. And Rouault wrote, he said, I saw clearly that the clown was me, was us. We all wear a glittering costume. But underneath the costume and the mask, there are tears of grief. And that changed his life. Now you might think, well, that's kind of depressing. But what it, what it helped him realize is that the gospel is a place that is be, because of Jesus, we can bring our groanings to God. We can bring our groanings into the church, which leads to our last hope in our glory. Point number four. We've seen flashes of this before. Now, now let me go back to verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So all of creation is, and this is a really um, very unique Greek word that Paul uses here for eager longing. It means literally to think with your head outstretched is what it means. So the best way I can picture that is like a little kid at a parade trying to like, Oh, like my grandson watching, my three-year-old grandson watching him watch the fire trucks go by at the parade in East Aurora. It's like, oh, 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 look at that, look at that. So it's like this eager longing. You're thinking with your head outstretched in anticipation. And it's a word that, as far as I understand, was only used in the New Testament. So what is happening and what will happen in Jesus is so new that the church had to make up a new word for it. Eager longing. And then verse 22, also with the groaning pains of childbirth. So behind the hurt, behind the anguish, behind the, 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 the pain, there is something good that is coming, coming. Something so glorious, it will take your breath away. And then Paul ends with these two, um, these two verses where the word hope shows up uh, five times in these two little verses. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You know, I've, I've just observed that in my own life and in the lives of many people I know and love and just watching kind of our cultural moment, it just, it seems like we often go to one or two options. We either want to, we we think about the groaning of the world and we, we want to deny it. We just want to pretend it's not there or it's not that bad. Um, and so we drink too much or we work too much or we're online too much or we find something to numb ourselves and escape. That's not hope. Or we go the other way. We like face it. We see it. We look at it. We're outraged by it. We, we, we hate it. We want to fight against it. But we get overwhelmed by it. And we wind up, because the injustice and the hurt never end. And we wind up exhausted and cynical and angry. That's not hope either. 
I've done both. Look at what Paul says here. Look at where this passage is going. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So all throughout this passage, St. Paul has been saying, no, 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 no. Look at it. Listen to it. Attend to it. Attend to your neighbors that are groaning. Pay attention to the poor and the suffering who are groaning. The marginalized. Look at it. Pay attention to your own groaning. You don't have to deny it. But it's not yours to fix, ultimately. We have our small role. Emmanuel Anglican has its small role in this area, in your community, in Chicago, in Illinois, in the United States, in the world, in the cosmos. We all have our own little place, but it's ultimately not ours to fix. But the church lives together by moving into the groaning stories around us. I have a neighbor. Um, I can talk about him because he'll never, he'll never find this, um, this audio. But um, some of my neighbors Google me and check me out. But, um, but, um, but I love this guy. He's a really good guy. He's kind of like the watchdog of the neighborhood. He stands out on the street. He's um, you know, probably in his late 40s. He stands out on the street, and there's all these like, people that drive like, super fast down our street with super large, loud cars. And yes, yeah, sorry, they're all young men. And so they, they ride by really fast. And, and he stands out there and yells at them and swears at them and, like, threatens to call the cops on them. And I'm like, dude, man, you got, a, you got an important role in this neighborhood, but you got to have a little more finesse, you know, a little more um, work with people, you know. So anyway, one day he comes over to my, he's sitting on my porch, and we have this conversation, and he tells me, you know, this story of groaning, story of hurt, and a twin brother that died when he was 29 years old. He and his mother don't speak to each other anymore. I mean, it was, it was more. Struggles with depression, which is why he smokes weed. But, I mean, he tells me this whole story, and I'm just like, man, I had no idea. I had no idea the groaning that you're going through. And it moved me to just love my neighborhood more, to move into my neighborhood more. So here's the thing. There is a God of the impossible. And St. Paul is telling us here that he is going to turn our groaning into glory. He is going to turn our hurt into hallelujahs. And until that day, you are never alone in your groaning. You are never alone in your what we celebrate around the Eucharistic table is that you are never alone in your groaning. And I thought about this passage, and let me just end with three questions that I asked myself. How can I not fall in love with a God like that? How could I not open the door of my heart every day of my life to a God like that? How can I not give that living God my whole self? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.